The combination of seasonal flu, COVID-19, and RSV that overwhelmed some Texas healthcare facilities last winter has been called a triple-demic. A new survey from the Annenberg Public Policy Center indicates that one in three Americans is worried that someone in their family will be affected by one or more of these illnesses. To dig into this, UT Tyner Radio connects with UT Tyner biochemistry professor, Dr. Sean Black. Here's your host, Mike Landis. For a lot of East Texans, triple-demic, pandemic, endemic, all are very hard to grasp. People always get seasonal illnesses in the winter, but these days, it seems so foreboding. Well, I understand completely. Partly, the problem comes from the fact that we don't know where our information is coming from and if it's accurate. So we hear this, we hear that, we hear this, and then we have to sort of put it together and say, well, what am I going to do? Is it real? And of course, my job is to help you see what's really going on because we've been in the heart of this since the beginning of the pandemic. That Annenberg survey reflects the general lack of knowledge of the three horsemen of the seasonal illnesses. 22% say that COVID-19 is going to be the one they have to worry about. 14% say RSV. 9% say flu. 41% say they are equally probably going to cause some sort of severe illness. 16% have no idea. Are public health agencies doing the best they can to inform East Texans about what they might be facing, or can they do better? Well, I think they're trying. All of us have been trying, some better than others. But my job has been to be accurate and to be a help and a hope in the midst of all of this. So I'm so glad we have a chance to talk because I can give you some real information. I guess you should be cautious, if you will, of someone who says we'll give you accurate information. Fortunately, I've provided you with some Yes, you have. Some papers and things to back up the kind of things that we might talk about. Right. And the thing that is most interesting to me, where do you start? I mean, if somebody, I imagine that particularly this time of year, you run into somebody from the general public and boy, they've got questions for you about what this is all about. What kinds of questions do you get and how do you respond? I get lots of different questions. And one of the biggest things I found is helpful is to understand the entire pandemic. Okay. First of all, by the time we hit Omicron a couple of years ago, people thought, oh, the pandemic is over. We're done. I'm done with this. And people had what we call COVID fatigue. Yes. And I do not blame them one bit. On the other hand, if there's a real threat or some trouble out on the horizon, it would be great to know about it so we can prepare, deal with it, and then be back to our lives. So I think from that standpoint, uh, understanding the pandemic is very useful when it began way back in 2019, we had no idea what was coming. It really blindsided us in a lot of ways. And wave after wave after wave after wave of COVID hit us until Delta, which is really quite deadly. And then we got to Omicron, and it was very infectious, but people didn't feel it was quite as bad. And that's when the pandemic was dubbed to be over. Let me give you an idea from the virus's perspective. The virus was working on becoming more and more infectious. So in a sense, we have the original Wuhan, and then we have Alpha, Beta, and all of those things, Delta and Omicron. And each time, the subsequent variant was more infectious, outcompeted the previous, and now we have a new one that has different properties and so forth. Now, isn't that the nature of viruses? Yes, but the... uh, the ability to do this is limited for most viruses to become very infectious. For example, measles is enormously infectious. 
Whereas you take something else uh, like the common cold, it's infectious, but not terribly infectious. So what is the potential of that virus to achieve this? Well, we didn't know. Now, most people thought the virus was getting worse and worse and worse, but it turns out that the virus in the first half of the pandemic didn't really care. It wanted to be more and more and more and more infectious. Now, when we hit Omicron, it's super infectious, but most people don't get very sick and so forth. Now, when we went back to our lives, the virus was still at work. And the question is, what is it doing now? Well, it has to be infectious and maybe a little bit more infectious. So what does that mean? Well, it's not just resting, if you will. It's working on the other half of its abilities, if you will. And the other one is to be dangerous or pathogenic. So what's happening is we get a little bit more infectious, but quite a lot more pathogenic, a little dangerous. Mm -hmm. And when I did some work that I published back in May, I showed that as you went from Omicron through, they have names for all these variants, BA24, BA5, XBB1.5, and so forth. The, uh, we would call it a CFR. It tells us how dangerous the virus is getting. And it was going up exponentially at that point. Well, I asked myself, well, is this real? And we did some curve fitting and found out that it fit virtually perfect. It was 0.999 something. And the reality was, well, could we actually extrapolate this to the next subvariant? And so we did. And that was basically the purpose of that publication was to tell people what's coming. So first half of the pandemic, getting more infectious. Second half of the pandemic, getting more dangerous, more pathogenic. Well, we didn't know when this next subvariant would come on the scene. It could have been the next month. It could be two months. And it turns out to be a very strange thing because none of us would have predicted the fact that the whole COVID scene would be very quiet for about four months. Unfortunately, uh, the subvariant, the Omicron subvariant that we have coming is more infectious than any previous one and about two-thirds as infectious as the original Wuhan virus. So this is not a very pleasant virus. So the reality is our aim was to say in the paper, let's know about this in advance. Let's go ahead and prepare. Let's do the best we can, and we'll see what happens. I love the idea that, that as, as someone who's, who is – this is your life's work, and you put all of the, this. This virus has become – we anthropomorphize it as it, it does, it thinks, it grows, it, it 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 changes. It uh, becomes something else. I, but it, but that's true. I mean, that's how you have to deal with it, right? You really almost have to. I mean, in a sense, it has a personality, yeah. and you're working with that personality. It's just not a very pleasant personality. No, it's not. But the reality is, most things that are bad, you can anticipate a little bit. And in this case, we've had the really the. I guess it's a real benefit to be able to know sort of how bad it was but not necessarily when it's going to come. I've done some recent work, which it's too, if you will, late to publish, but we found a way to figure out what happens during the pandemic by looking at the trends in all the different subvariants. And they, uh, if you will, sort of prefigure or uh, show you in advance what's going to happen next. And so if you look at the earlier part from Omicron, we could predict when 
that BA2 was going to come on, when the BA4 was going to come on, when the BA5 was going to come on. And now we've got more indicators than we've ever seen before. And we can sort of predict when the, the peak of the next pandemic will occur in the United States. What's interesting to me, and please forgive me if I'm oversimplifying this. I'm not a scientific guy. No, no. This sort of sounds a little bit like what they do with the flu, where they look at last year's and then they try to create whatever the next vaccine is going to be based on their research and that sort of thing. Is that an oversimplification or is that kind of the same well, thing? Well, it's, it's kind of, sort of, but not really the same thing. Okay. With the case of the flu vaccine, they never know how it's going to spread in the population. And they look at trends and then they say, well, I think that the uh, H1N1 is going to be about this much and so forth. And then they balance the amount of stuff in the, uh, in the vaccine to try and meet that. We would call that an educated guess. Yes. Okay? Well, I mean, that, it's all an educated guess, really, is. right? The difference is, in this particular case, when we can do calculations to show us certain things and the trends have all fit in the past, we're now not, we're talking about numbers now. So uh, numbers don't lie if you've worked them the right way. And of course, when we take what we've uh, shown from the, our work on the next pathogenic subvariant, and the potential time in which it will happen, it looks like we're, lo- we're looking at about a month away. That close. My goodness. L- let, me, let me digress for just a moment and talk about flu. We talked about flu just a moment yeah. ago. Now, at the time of the October 2023 Annenberg survey, 21% said they had received the flu shot this season. Compared with 26% in mid-October 2022, 38% in the second week of October of November, I should say, 2021, I don't personally know anyone who's against getting a flu shot, but I do run across those these days who say they're not going to get a COVID booster this time around. Bad idea? Well, that's a very controversial question, and you must have a, a real good sense of that. Yeah, well, of course. Well, the reality I'm is— you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is that you, there's things to be said on both sides of the vaccines. Vaccines are very good things. Don't, for example, don't stop having kids get their MMR and all of the childhood vaccines. They're all very good. They protect us against terrible, terrible viruses. I mentioned measles before. You don't want to get that. You don't want to get rubella, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is that there are, uh, say, a cost-benefit calculation that goes with each vaccine. And so the question is, how many problems come with that vaccine compared to the benefits that we get out of it. You know, cost-benefit ratio, if you will. Or you might say it's uh, how much do I get out of this compared to what I put into it. So uh, we can look at all the previous vaccines, which usually take many, many years to develop. And it's not so much that it takes a long time for them to develop, but they make the vaccine and they test and they test and they test. They try other populations. They test and they test and they test. They figure out how dangerous it is. And when it's ready for rollout, they can tell people what the side effects are, what the dangers are, and all of that, and we make our own decisions. The COVID vaccine is different in many ways. The first thing is that when we look at the problems with the vaccine compared to the benefits, there are a lot of problems with this vaccine. It really is, and I think almost everyone would agree now, the most dangerous vaccine that's ever been rolled out. Hmm. When we look at the so-called VAERS database, which is a public reporting system, Mm. if you took all of the problems with all previous viruses and added them up, they only come up to about 20% of the problems we've seen with the COVID virus. 
Goodness. And I've shown this. Other groups have shown this. It's, it's pretty common knowledge. So that cost-benefit ratio, we want to think some other things. On the benefit side, we've also found that when you get this vaccine, it does work, but it doesn't work as well as it used to. People remember back to the original vaccine that was 95 96% efficacious or effective. Now they're only around 50% effective, and the benefit you get wears off within a month or two. So we just have to weigh those up and decide for ourselves, will we get that? There's another thing uh, on top of that, and that's called, well, I want to give you the technical name, but what happens when you get, um, let's say, stuff in you that's not you? You know, our body knows how to know who we are. But for example, when we eat food, Well, that's foreign. Why don't we develop antibodies and have terrible problems to food? Well, our system has a way of sensing that and saying, okay, this is foreign, but it's okay. Mm. And what happens when you get vaccines and multiple vaccines is your body begins to do that same thing with whatever the vaccine is against. So that now we have waning immunity, but we also have this problem of it not working and maybe even causing, causing problems. Causing problems. Right. And so I say to people, yeah, make your own decisions. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about the United States. We believe in free speech, predetermination, and all the beautiful things that we have in the Constitution. So let's marshal those and make a good decision for ourselves and for our family. But we have to have the information. And I would say basically, uh, it's there. It's, it's there. not a question of being able to find it. The information is out there right now. Well, it, as a man of science, it has to be frustrating when you hear misinformation or even disinformation from public officials or in the media, even sometimes health officials, local health officials. Uh, and our, our folks here in East Texas, I think, do an amazing job of mm-hmm. trying to stay on top of this. I, I, I appreciate that very much here in East Texas. What's the most common item that you hear and what is the correct answer to it? In other words, something that's a piece of just bad information. Okay. Well, going back to our previous discussion, I would say the vaccine is not our best option. I'd like something that works and stays with you for at least a year or years rather than days or months. That being said, we have to have some hope. If there's going to be something bad coming, can we deal with it? Let me interrupt you for a question. Didn't we just come out with a new COVID vaccine? We did. And? And... The virus has moved on, and it's moved on in a big, big way, such that, for example, the latest part of the virus, that XBB 1.5 that they put in the bivalent vaccine, they're very minor right now. Other Mm -hmm. things have come on the scene. The virus continues to mutate in a very rapid fashion. For example, who's heard of, for example, um, BA2.86 or who's heard of FL.1 and so forth. That's an airplane, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) Sounds like it. This is part of the problem with the pandemic. There's all this technical jargon. Part of my job is to know this and to be able to help people see what's going on and really make sense of it. The hope, I think, uh, really comes from some earlier work that we did because there are two realities when we talk about public health and uh, viruses and bacteria and all of that kind of stuff. One of them is a vaccine. We prefer that when you have one, as long as it's safe and effective. On the other hand, we have what we call therapeutics or drugs that work against the virus. And you'll see during the pandemic, people were doing some of both. 
For example, uh, there was a company that came out with Paxlovid Mm -hmm. for COVID that treats the virus and it does an okay job. Okay, so there's one therapeutic that one could go to. The work that I did beginning very early on in the pandemic was to find some way to help people that was really accessible to them and was effective, safe and effective. And through that work, I found out that a common over-the-counter antihistamine actually works against the coronavirus. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? I was very surprised. We did a small clinical study, a retrospective clinical study, and the people seemed to agree too. And uh, in any case, uh, I'll tell you the fancy name that you'll never remember. It's called chlorpheniramine malleate. It's been on the market for over 70 years. There are some side effects, but they're minor. If you have them, you just don't take it anymore. It's not a long-term problem. But otherwise, it seems to work. Uh, I mean, in my case, wow, it really works. You, you've had COVID. Oh, I have. And uh, when I, I caught, uh, well, I, I got the vaccine originally and the booster, and then I caught COVID with Omicron. Ah. And most people were sick for about a week, 10 days. Because I took chlorpheniramine, I was better after four or five days. Ah, interesting. So it really is a big help. If they go down to their local pharmacy, because this is an over-the-counter drug, they can just pick it up as allergy remedy uh-huh. or tabs. Uh-huh. It goes by different names, right. but the idea is inexpensive, it's available, and it's a way of fighting back. If- so if there's something that comes about bad, we have a number of ways we can deal with it. We've talked about a number of them. I like something that I can use that's available to me. I don't have to go to the doctor. I don't have to sit in a waiting room with sick people. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Don't go to the hospital. There's sick people there. <laughs> but, but let me let me ask you something here. Now, let's bring this back around. Yeah. Your your studies have indicated that we've got another bout coming, maybe coming in another month. What do we need to do between now and then? How would you how would you wrap this up in a final thought? Well, use our best practices. We're people of common sense. We know that hand washing really helps. If we wash our hands a time or two a day, go to four or five times a day. If you have a problem with dry hands, use a moisturizing soap. Use whatever you need to keep your hands in good shape. That will prevent lots of things. We found that masks don't work very well. There was a huge meta-study published about a year ago that showed they were mostly, at best, 10% 10% effective. That's if you use the N95 type of masks. On the other hand, if one wore a mask to keep your hands from going to your face and bringing viruses onto you, that could be helpful too. So I'm not re- I'm an, not an advocate of masks because they work uh, in terms of viruses, but most of the time we pick up things on our hands, we haven't washed our hands, we touch our face and oh no. Now we have a virus. So whatever we can do, and of course, chlorpheniramine, in my mind, fits well into this as well. People have shown that things like zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, and so forth also also help. If we're not doing some, let's say, supplements and so forth, for example, as it goes more toward the wintertime, our vitamin D gets lower and lower and lower. And that's a big way our body fights viruses. You don't have enough vitamin D. It's like fighting with a hand tied behind your back. Let's get both hands in the game, if you will, do the right thing. And we've got some ways to deal with this. Not like we're shooting in the dark. Yeah, but wash those hands first. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for listening to UT Tider Radio Connects with Dr. Sean Black, UT Tider Associate Professor of Biochemistry. 
For a transcript of this episode, visit our website, uttigerradio.org. To be notified of future episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For Mike Landis, I'm Jeff Johnson. Thanks for listening to UT Tider Radio Connects from UT Tider Radio 99.7 FM.